Please be advised that today's show includes discussions around sexual assault and domestic violence. If any of today's conversation triggers feelings of distress, please remember that you can always contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. I was crying, I was in tears, and I did what I, what I call embracing the uncertainty. At that point, the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen was a better fate than one more day under the clutches of this terrifying individual that I had come to fear on a daily basis and who I despised with every fibre of my being, violence, anger, his abuse, his aggression. And I was like, I walked into the uncertainty when I called 1-5. I was like, this is better. This is a better choice out of the terrible set of options in front of me. I choose this uncertainty. I'm Jazz Rawlinson and this is Reasons to Live, your go-to podcast for inspiring stories of hope, triumph and inspiration from everyday people. Real voices, important issues, no holding back. Ready to join? Earlier this year, I became aware of a young Australian lawyer named Lara Hall. In 2018, Lara was actually held captive in Pakistan for many months by a man who had spent half a decade learning all her vulnerabilities, her childhood traumas and her mental illnesses, and then using those vulnerabilities to groom her into becoming his victim. After spending more than five years speaking via phone and video chat, Lara decided to take Sajad up on his offer to attend his brother's wedding with him in Pakistan. It was meant to be a 30-day visit and a chance to discover if their friendship could be something more. Instead, Lara discovered that everything Sajad had promised her was a lie. Within weeks, her documents had been taken, her flights cancelled, and it was at this point that Sajad's abuse turned from mental to physical. Lara's clothing was taken from her, she was kept confined to the house, and during this time, she was also beaten, starved, raped, and denied even the simplest of human rights. It is an absolute miracle that Lara eventually escaped let alone that she made it home to Australia. But what is even more amazing is the voice that this young woman has become for other grooming and trafficking victims, and the work she is now doing to ensure that no other victim is ever left to fend for themselves in a foreign country the way she was. I'm so proud to bring you this chat, and I hope you find Lara's story as inspiring as I do. So without further ado, here it is, my chat with Australian lawyer, Lara Hall. Lara Hall, thank you so much for joining me today. No problem at all. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're so welcome. Look, your story is absolutely incredible and I've just been amazed, you know, reading a bit about your journey over the past year online and seeing some of the articles that have been coming out and I think it's a story and and an experience that really, really needs a lot more awareness. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today and I'm very appreciative of you giving your time. That's certainly no issue at all. I think it's a story that maybe resonates with a lot of people because I think we're all vulnerable to grooming behavior and grooming tactics and that's kind of why I'm here because I feel that you and I both align on um, on, on raising awareness about women's issues and in particular uh, the burgeoning rise of, of, of grooming, uh, especially in the age of the internet. So that's why I'm here to raise awareness and to, to, to access other women that may, may fall victim. Mm, 100%. Well, 
you know, for everyone who's listening and maybe isn't aware of your story, um, as you've, you know, very bravely and publicly shared online, you were a, um, you're a victim and a survivor of grooming. And some people might not really understand what that term grooming means. And that's something that we'll, we'll get into as, you know, your story unfolds today. Um, but I'd like to just sort of jump right back to the beginning. So, there was a day about seven years ago that really changed your life and set you on this path and it pretty much all started with a train ride, like a train ride that should have just been like any other day, you know, of your life. So can you share a bit about, you know, that that particular um, day on the train and, and how that set your life in motion? It's funny how the trajectory of my life was so influenced by uh, one day and there's like a fork stuck in the road. Um, basically, yeah, circa seven years ago, in 2012, I would, as, as a guest, um, I was on a train um, in Sydney um, heading back home, I think, um, and there was a, a, a woman and she was quite visibly upset and I, I'm quite empathetic uh, by nature and I sort of approached her and I said, oh, who are you? She, she said her name was Rihanna. And, um, you know, she said that she'd been perpetually failing her IELTS test, which is the English test that's required to remain um, in Australia. And it was, uh, she needed a score of 5.5 to remain on the visa class, I think, that she was on. And um, given that I have a background in, because before I did my Bachelor of Laws, I've done a Bachelor of Laws, by the way, at the University of Notre Dame. I did a Bachelor of Arts at the University of Tasmania, majoring in English and Sociology. So I was like, oh, I can help you. And I, I felt deeply moved by her plight. I thought it would be quite isolating to, to come to a country like Australia and really not have that much family here. She only had her brother and his wife, Pfizer. So um, that's how I became kind of involved with her family. She was So she was from Pakistan. I wasn't quite clear about that. And, um, yeah, we, we uh, connected this way uh, from one human to another. And I guess that meeting irrevocably changed the course of my life, you could say. As, as, as um, mundane as that, that, that um, juncture of time might have seemed at, at, at that incident, it now in hindsight was quite a, an important pivotal mm. point in my life. And so the two of you became friends and, and you were helping her out with her studies and then over time you sort of grew closer to her family and and they were you know really supportive of you and and very kind and loving um and through that process you met uh, a man called Sajad isn't that right that's right um so Brianna has a brother called Ashad and his wife his name is Pfizer and Pfizer's first cousin is uh Sajad um and we were on a Skype call and and Noreen who is uh, Sajad's brother and uh, uh, sorry sister's brother sister Noreen and Sajad were both on the call in about 2013 I reckon um at as a rough guess, circa 2013, and that's when we became um, acquainted with one another. And he introduced himself as a lawyer, and that was a really um, sort of a, a nice segue into my life, given that I was actually studying law at the University mm. of Notre Dame. And what were some of the first things that you thought about him when you met him and were just chatting online? Um, you know, initially I wasn't really that enamored with him, I'm going to be quite honest, because I came on really heavy with the ideological stuff and I guess um but you know like over time I guess I kind of was like you know he belongs to this family and I like them a lot so I let that kind of 
initial things sort of fade and um, intermittently we talked. Um, you know, he was trying really hard to connect um, and he would get quite annoyed when I didn't respond straight away early on, which sort of annoyed me um, and put up my guard. But then he kind of, I guess, relaxed on those things and admitted, yeah, okay, I won't harass you as much and be annoyed when you don't respond straight away. So initially there was a bit of to and froing there. Um, it would be too long to explain the entire nuances of our friendship, mm. but like, um, you know, over time I came to kind of review him in a trustworthy light, I guess you'd say, over mm. time. And part of that, you know, sort of relationship or friendship that formed between the two of you, um, you know, you've shared that that was partly because you were quite vulnerable as well. Um, where you were in your life, you'd had a somewhat difficult childhood. You, you know, were struggling with, with some mental health issues and he kind of came into your life at a time where you felt quite, uh, would you say, a bit isolated or a bit vulnerable? It's quite an accurate characterization of the situation. Um, I think it's really important to be, for me to be very forthright about the fact that uh, mental illness it shouldn't be considered a shameful thing. And that's partly why I've been so open about my journey with mental health, because um, I wanted to um, elucidate the issues around mental health. And, um, you know, I did not come from a, a, a Brady Bunch situation. I came from quite a, a challenging uh, childhood background. Um, I'm not really in contact, I'm not in contact with either of my parents. Um, my strongest connection is with my sister, my twin sister, Amy, who I love more than anything. Um, however, yeah, we had a very, very difficult childhood and it's something that I'm, you know, still coming to terms with, but I'm willing to be open about it because I want to reach other people who may have been through similar situations. But the legacy of that, uh, to cut to the chase, is that I do have a number of diagnosed conditions, OCD, PTSD. I've dealt with depression and anxiety. And if, if anybody listening to this podcast can can take comfort and solace in the fact that they're not alone is something that I would really appreciate because, I mean, like, if we had cancer, we wouldn't, you know, like, malign someone for that. So why mm, would we judge definitely. or cast dispersion on someone for a mental illness? So, yeah, groomers do find people's uh, weaknesses. And um, given that I was so um, transparent about that, I think he did utilize that as a vehicle for gaining a foothold in my life. Well, yeah, I, th I think that... That's. I think it's really brave of you to talk, you know, even if it's not in a lot of detail, but to talk a little bit about how your childhood led into those, you know, mental health struggles or more mental illnesses that you've got. Um, and also distinguishing or, you know, pointing out that fact that traffickers, groomers, you know, domestic violence abusers, sexual abusers, they always look for the person who is vulnerable. They always look for someone who struggles to speak up for themselves, someone who is perhaps very empathetic, um, you know, someone who struggles to kind of put their boundaries in place. Um, and I think that's, that's another really important part of your story to um, touch on as well. And so, you know, obviously he – Obviously, Sajad noticed some of these things about you and for whatever reason, he decided that you were his one and only and it sounds like he was very um, – it sounds like he didn't really want to give up. He was very determined to win you over. Um, yes, he was extremely determined. Um, there was a sense of, of an, an unwillingness to give up this 
surprise, I guess, in retrospect. Um, but yes, he was. He became very aware of my mental health struggles, which mm. I was very open about and very transparent um, and lucid about. Um, but just because I don't want to skip this point, um, you've just made me think of one point, if you don't mind me raising mm. it, um, that um, when I initially went to the Daily Mail, I mean, there was, there's been so much support, and I really want to uh, warmly... Um, praise the people who have supported me but one thing I did notice and one thing that cannot be uh you know um avoided is 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 this victim blaming culture that I had seen there some people I noticed I was horrified with some of the comments of what was she expecting when she went to Pakistan or um you know she deserved this um all these sorts of things oh she, all these very negative commentary um and I want to say that any victim of abuse is not to blame. It doesn't matter how naive I was, how mentally able or mentally unwell I was. I mean, how in, I could be Einstein and I still not do, do not deserve to be harmed. So I repudiate any attempts to victim blame. And I strongly, harshly condemn all those comments that uh, blamed me for what happened to me. Mm. I am not to blame. I think it's actually, I think it's actually incredibly um, inspiring that you have that level of self awareness that and and that you're not taking on these things that people say. And it's really interesting that you bring this up because it's actually something I was going to ask you about later in the conversation. Um, so, yeah, well, we will talk a little bit more about okay, that. I just wanted to make sure that was part of our dialogue. Because, oh, definitely. Um, it's so important that we rebuke all efforts to. Um, there might be other victims who do take on board those comments and um, initially I was quite affronted by those comments Mm. but I realized that they're completely based in a deep-seated ignorance. Mm. So let's sort of fast forward a bit. Um, When when do you think it was that your feelings towards Sajjad sort of switched over from, you know, more of a friendship sort of thing to actually wondering about your future or whether this could be something more? Well, I think it was uh, like in about late 2016, I think, or early 2017, I was actually hospitalized for um, my mental illness. So I went to Concord Hospital and it was almost, I don't know, out of some weird kind of fate or whatever, serendipity. I don't know if serendipity is always used in a positive context, but in this case, it's negative context, um, that he kind of just appeared again. And I was not doing great mentally. And um, I was desperately craving some sort of um, comfort, love, acceptance, belonging. And it was almost very um, my, my bad luck, I guess, that he came into my life again full force at that juncture so we'd had you know preceding contact of course and the antecedents of that contact had been I guess less um profuse but um we then started talking a lot more and um I exposed a lot of my vulnerabilities to him and every time I was vulnerable he was there and my sister was going through some really challenging times and anyone who loves my sister kind of that's a gateway to my heart um he kind of showed her a lot of love as she was going through a difficult situation herself and he was always there to counsel her and always there to counsel me and this was very enamoring to me and I guess I was like okay I've always wanted to be with someone that's so um cares about you so much yeah um 
you know, and there was also the fact that he was offering financial stability, which has been raised in the media, and he um, contrived actually a fake purchase contract, which he, which we've got a copy of, and he stamped his um, thumbprint to it, which is quite a significant length to go to oh, to manipulate somebody. It's, um, it's almost unbelievable that someone would it's go to that link. And he produced a sonnery bank, a, a cheque, which we've also got a copy of, um, uh, of the deposit for this alleged property that he's now in subsequent messages admitted was all a farce. Um, wow. I didn't, uh, I guess, get co-opted into this purely for financial reasons. I want to make that clear because that's also been a misconception. But anybody would be um, kind of attracted to somebody who could provide financial stability, especially when you've come from oh, a background that isn't financially stable. And he was um, offering it was the a... whole package that he was providing. Um, it was very attractive. It was alluring. Um, and I was like, yeah, I would have, like, stability if I went to Pakistan. You know, this, this, could, be, this could be something there. Yeah. And coming, yeah, and coming from the, your background with having a really difficult childhood and having someone yeah. who is – so, and, and this was my experience too with the guy that sort of groomed me and, and gaslighted me. It's like when you have that person who just seems like they're just so infatuated with you and they're showering you with attention and compliments and you haven't, you haven't had that before, you know, especially if you haven't had a strong father figure or a strong male role model and then you meet someone when you're vulnerable and they're giving you you know saying all the things that you've always wanted someone to say and they're offering you stability that is so alluring and like I can only speak for myself but I know it's really hard when you haven't had that strong role model or really any other serious relationship to show you otherwise you don't know to look out for warning signs. Like you, you just take it at face value. And I'm guessing nor that's you, what you yeah. did as well. And nor do you have a, a voice of reason. To, I mean, my sister can't possibly, who is my peer, can't possibly be that voice of reason, but you don't have like a strong familial figure um, as a voice of reason to say, hang on, these things don't quite make sense, mm. Lara. And you don't have that strong familial infrastructure to insulate you against those um, those people that have darker intentions and malevolent ideas in, in place, especially when you're not that kind of person mm. yourself. Was Amy? Um, was your sister Amy the only one who voiced some concerns, or did you have any other friends uh, that said anything about no, it? Well, I'm I'm close with my grandmother. I'm not. My grandparents on either side are pretty good, um, and some of the cousins are good, but parents are not great. Let's 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 just get that out there. My nan did voice initial concerns, and he groomed her as well. And there's a, there's a number of email exchanges between them that go back and forth, and he kind she kind of shoot all of her concerns. She she raised her concerns with him. She said, you know, I want to make sure she's like if she goes to Pakistan that she's basically an Aussie girl in Pakistan. She comes from a Western culture. You can't take that away from her. You can't divorce her of that. And mm. um, so he never said. Concerned. So he never said anything about your need to convert to Islam. Or he assured her. He assured her she. I would not have to well. convert. My nan was like, I don't want Lara to have to convert to Islam. That's completely ideologically um, contrary to her beliefs mm. and um, he said she, she, she would be not coerced to do any of that which obviously later would not be the case. Mm. Um, so he really and she would basically be an Aussie girl in Pakistan and have all her freedoms and be completely um, liberated uh, and free here mm. in, in our society 
And he said, you know, any reports about the status of women in Pakistan is fraught with bias. We're actually quite a free country. And, you know, he'd send me this information. And, he, yeah, he really kind of groomed us all. And he groomed my best friend as well. It wasn't just me that fell under the spell. It was my best friend, Annie, one of my best friends, Annie, Amy, um, my nan, and a couple of other friends who also kind of spelled, helped and, spell that. And what about, what about Rihanna? The girl who, you know, Brianna first sort of introduced kind of you. Apart, but she had um, kind of proposed this idea of a green card marriage with her brother Mitan many years ago, and it had kind of scarred the relationship. And I was actually more aligned with Pfizer and Ashad at that point, mm. and they were kind of there were problems between them as well, which don't really need to be, you know. Yeah. In yeah. So jumping forward to 2018, and basically it got to a stage where obviously you guys were talking pretty much 24-7 and somewhere in the conversation he invited you to come to Pakistan to go to his brother's wedding with him. Yeah. Um, and so when, you know, when he made that invitation, what sort of things were running through your head? Um, by that time we'd been talking so much that a lot of my concerns had been um, acquiesced and um, I was very much kind of becoming quite open to the idea and you know I, so I, I went with a dual purpose of getting to know him better my life in Sydney was pretty uh, terrible at the time and I I felt fairly confident that I would be safe to be if you had asked me before I went to Pakistan what I thought of Sajjad it would be completely different to what I would say now. Mm. I really genuinely believed that he was a very good person that had my best interests at heart. Well, he'd, so he'd literally spent, he had literally spent years telling you that, you know, all of the best things that you could possibly hear. So yeah. I guess there was, was nothing to really feel. It was reinforced by family that lived in me 10 minutes away and I would talk about, you know, the, the, the assets and stuff with Pfizer and she'd reinforce that it was true. So I don't know about the level of involvement of local family, but they certainly, and they certainly said he's a great person. You're so lucky. I felt like, I felt like lucky. Mm. And the feeling that I had was, wow, I'm so blessed that this person is coming to our lives, me and Amy, and, and, and wants to help both me and my sister get on the right path. Um, so the thoughts that were going through my mind was, oh, how lucky am I? That someone would. I wasn't thinking that this was going to go as dark as it as it went. Otherwise, I wouldn't have gone. And I had no idea. I could not predict that it, things would become as um, scary and frightening as they did become. Unfortunately, hmm. I did not foreshadow this at all. And so you jumped on a plane and you flew yep. over there to meet him. And when, and and I want to also make clear as well that you had spent years talking to him on video chat as well as audio. So this wasn't a situation of you, um, you know, being some naive young woman who just talked to someone on the phone and never actually saw who they were. He had spent years grooming you, saying all the right things to your family. You knew his family or, you know, met some members of his family. So everything, you know, looked great. When you arrived, were you excited when you saw him in the airport? And was he was. was he overjoyed when you arrived as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was very excited about an 18-hour flight stopping in Bangkok. I was really, really happy when I arrived. And, like, I, um, I was presented with flowers at the airport. And um, I don't think all the family was there, but quite a few members of the family were there. 
I can't remember exactly, but yeah, it was it was quite a happy occasion. Um, like there were hugs all around, and it was a good a good a good experience. I would say, like the mm. initial meeting, I, I had none of my um, alarm bells were ringing. I was like, oh, this is really nice. I feel welcome. Yeah, yeah. That was the initial um, feeling. Yes, and. Of course, everything changed once you got to his house because nothing that he had spent the last few years telling you about was true or was accurate. Well, the, see, the initial thing, guys, I have to explain, the initial um, thing is that we were supposed to stay initially in this house in Lahore and then we were going to go to the Spanish villa and there were only supposed to be two to three people living and we were just waiting for renovations to be completed on the Spanish house and if I if I was indeed happy with staying living in Lahore um I came into the house I noticed it wasn't this house this other house that he had it wasn't like anything like I had expected I was quite affronted by how many people were there I was told hang on they're just here for the wedding calm down relax it's all okay and I was like okay I said to my friend Annie like there's just so many people here it's really triggering my OCD and I was pretty you know um, tired and overwhelmed from the flight. I remember I went up to my room and my room it was was looking great. They obviously had the maid fix it up nicely. They presented me with some clothes and some costume jewelry and you know things. And I was just, I was just in the back of my head. I was like, there's so many people here. Like you know, I I didn't really get to inspect the whole house. And I was like, it doesn't really kind of match what I thought I was coming into. And I was like, there's so many people here. Was what I initially thought. Mm. Um, I was like, we're not living in with just two to three people, like was initially said. Um, but you know, like I was like, I'm not going to be one to make a big, big issue of it. Like it's rather for explaining. I'm not going to detract attention from that. And probably it's just because of the wedding, and that's what my friend Annie said, and that's what he said. It's just heaps of people here just because of the wedding. And at that point, it probably was about thirty people in the house. It would dwindle wow. down to about twenty. And how many bedrooms um, were actually in the house? Five, five rooms. Right. Okay. Well, I'm. I mean, I don't have OCD, but I think I would be pretty freaked out if I walked into a house and there were like 20 people in there and only a couple of bedrooms. So I think anyone would be. It was be... so claustrophobic. People were like sleeping on these makeshift beds, one like stacked side by side. Um, and over the time that was there, the accumulation of mess, because the, the, the maid hardly ever came. They came like maybe once or twice a week. Um, at other houses that I stayed at after I escaped the maid, like the, having a maid is a very common thing in Pakistan. Maid would come daily and, and there would be like a normal level of amount of people in the house. But um, the maid barely came and I mean like the, the hygiene level was so bad. Like I, I was sick numerous times when I was in Sajad's house. As soon as I left his house, I never got sick once. That for me tells me mm-hmm. quite is quite illuminating and illuminating fact. I was always sick. Always vomiting, always had food poisoning when I was in his house. But I ate at many locations after I um, got my escape and I never got sick. So the hygiene mm. level was extremely low and extremely poor in his house. So you walk um, in and there's people everywhere. There's only a couple of bedrooms, but he tells you, hey, it's okay. They're just here for the wedding and, you know, we'll yeah. be moving into the, the Spanish villa in a couple of weeks or a couple of months if you're happy yeah. with, you know, how – how things go when you're here mm-hmm. um because were you how long were you actually meant to be there for the wedding well my initial visa was um only granted for 30 days um the visa saga is a whole other saga mm. um to it and we were just supposed to extend if i was happy right um, okay 
the visa issue, which we can discuss later, mm. became a huge nightmare for me. Um, absolutely horrific for me. Um, and uh, a large reason which really curtailed my safe exit mm. a lot. Um, well, I'll, I'll let so you I'm talk actually, about that in a bit more detail um, yeah. in a little bit. But, but like, um, let me explain. So, yeah, like, as I said, um, I was told the first story was that they're just here for the wedding. When they didn't leave, all oh, they just moved in for your mental health. And I was like, hang on a second, we're developing a relationship here. When did when mm. did that? Like we talked about this so many times. Like I believe in transparency and honesty when you're you're opening up to somebody and developing your relationship. I was like, when did we have that dialogue? It's such really a strange really thing to say. That. I was like, he, he's like Noreen and all that have come in to look after you. And I'm like, this is a, considering that I've told you that, like having like so many people is like actually a trigger to my OCD. That's a really strange justification. And it still doesn't justify lying about my conditions and the fact that they were all going to be here. Mm. Um, I initially thought that. So and then I went around because I'm, I'm being of a legal mindset. I'm like, I'm going to actually get to the bottom of this. Started quizzing all the family members. They would be, some of them would toe the line that he was staying. The kids were obviously not as induced to kind of pathologically lie like that. So a lot of them would kind of reveal that, They'd always been there, and I kind of presenting with this evidence. He'd say, "Oh, that's just their poor English, Lara." So he was gaslighting me mm. the whole time. He was gaslighting me, and my friend Annie actually cross-examined him until he kind of uh, submitted and admitted that they'd always been there. That was sort of the familial house. And then I said to him, "I was really, really angry." I said to him, "I want to see the Spanish house." His first story was on the other, other side of Lahore. I mean, do you really want to go there, Lara? I said, Absolutely, I want to go there. And I said, then he goes, oh, I put tenants in it. What? I said, you put tenants in it? What do you mean? You put tenants in it? We've been talking You're for supposed to be possibly moving in in a couple of months. I mean, I like, makes no it sense. So, I was so bewildered. I was like, you put tenants in I said, you're going to issue an eviction notice ASAP. So he bought himself some time. He said, okay, I'll issue an eviction notice. And I kept saying he didn't expect that I'd keep hounding him. I was like I was like a bee in his bonnet. I was like <laughs> He probably thought, Oh, she'll she'll just go with the flow. She's a nosy. Okay. We're in we're on another day. Have you have you issued the eviction notice? Like when I'm angry with someone, you're not gonna you're gonna you're gonna like maybe he's not used to an very empowered woman. He mm. wasn't expecting an empowered woman to come into his house though, and I was like Where's that eviction notice, buddy? Um, and then he had to kind of, so he admitted, and it's all in, in the Facebook record, all in black and white. He said, you know, I made it with the Spanish house. It's all a lie. Still, as an artist, do we justify that I did it for you because you were upset? I'm like, that doesn't justify keeping a lie and carrying it on. Actually going to the extent of showing fake photos, contriving a contract keeping this lie out for many, many months. I talked about many of the photos and pictures that I mm. want to put in the house. And I've seen those photos too of the villa. He and talked about the price and how he negotiated it down from 42 million rupees to 40 million rupees. The depth Crazy and level of detail. Of detail. He said he negotiated the furniture. He said you should be so proud. I negotiated to have the furniture kept within the property. Just the level of detail is actually on another level of scary. Like this person is... Almost like the truth in him are like two ships in a night that never meet mm. and never never will meet. Like the level of pathology to the lies and the habitual nature of lying. And he said it on recordings as well. He's like, yes, I know I'm a liar. I'm an habitual liar. This is all in black and white, you know. So, I mean, he's completely shot his credibility. Uh, he's, com- he's a completely pathological, well-versed mm. liar. Let's be quite clear about this individual. Yeah, so, so, so how uh, long was it? 
you know, you start to see some of these red flags come up. How long was it before the abuse actually started? Well, the abuse really started after my visa had lapsed, really. I was kind of in legal no man's land. They cancelled my flight riding by my eyes. They told me it was because they were trying to increase the visa to three months. There were so many stories about the visa that it's hard to keep up with. The visa was allegedly extended to three months. Then, oh, no, Lara, it hasn't. It, did, it, 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 it converted on the Australian side, but it didn't convert here. They don't have records of it here. Like, things that don't even make sense. I, I now realise no stamp, no, no visa extension. That's as simple as it is. Um, and they were like, no, the visa hasn't been extended, but it's, it's always being worked on a visa in process um, and they use that as a way to control me um, it was so hard to keep up with the visa things my documents were taken from me um, so when when did he basically helpless so when did he take the documents from you and did you guys actually okay. ever get to go to the wedding um, I, I missed the two de- first two days because I was actually quite sick but I went to the um, so there's just three there's three components of the Pakistani wedding there's I think it's called the Mahan, Mandy, which is the, the, the pre-wedding. There's the Nika, which is the wedding, and there's the Walima. I went to the mm. Walima, which was at the Nadim Tika, which was a local restaurant. I think that's what it was called. Um, so I only went to the third day of the wedding. Um, but, yeah, like I, I was involved in it to that extent. Mm. Um, oh, I was just um, curious because I was wondering whether the wedding was part of the lies as well or whether, it, you know, it was no, actually was a, a- – there was a wedding. It happened, yeah. Right. Um, and so, no, I, yeah, I, I mean, like, even though I didn't go to those first few days at the wedding, mm. like, I saw Farouk and his wife Rashida come back in their wedding garments and stuff like that, and people coming, taking photos of them and everything. It was lit, that was legit. Mm. And so, you were saying, you've said, you know, in some, shared in some interviews that while you were there, he cancelled mm-hmm. your, or he took your passport or your documents from you and cancelled your flights. Was that towards the end of the 30 days? Yes, it was. I couldn't give you an exact date and time mm. that he did that. And he's like, I'm going to need your, 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 your passport to renew your visa um, and I can do it uh, while you're, you know, in absentia from it. I'm going to go to Lah- to Islamabad. And it was an ongoing saga and a reason for justifying my imprisonment. There was nothing. At that time, I was like, okay, well, like, I just want to make sure I'm not an illegal alien. Like, I just, like, they're, they're, they're going to just, like, fix it. It'll be fixed in a couple of days. There was no immediate cause for concern on the date that the flight was cancelled. I was like, okay, they're going to fix it. They want to fix it. They're going to go. He even like claimed to be going to the Lahore um, office to fix it. He's like, it's all, it's all under control. You're not going to be going to jail. It's not going to be any issue at this point. At that, at that, at that juncture in time. Mm. So there was no alarm bell that happened at the date that my flight was cancelled. No, and I wasn't familiar with the visa process at all. I was completely relying on him. Mm. Um, so I, I was mainly just concerned with making sure that I didn't overstay because I didn't know what the consequences of that would be and I imagined that they'd be quite dire so I was just like just, just fix it and he's like it's going to be fine we'll just fix it uh, it's only like the situation became very increasingly precarious over time to a very very bad level mm. let's just put it that way and when was that actual moment where you went okay something's wrong and like I want to leave I want to go home did you have that conversation with him um well when the abuse was escalating day by day um and my visa was lapsing into oblivion and so he was um sexually assaulting me um I was being starved I was subject to abuse from other family members I became pretty much powerless against the legally powerless and pretty much a prisoner and any outings kind of 
dwindled to almost nothing, like only on the rare occasion that I begged and begged and begged. Um, I mean, there was a period of about eight weeks, so I think that was the longest period of imprisonment um, and confinement. That's a rough estimate. And my life was a day in, day out hell. Um, I was told if I approached any authorities that um, they could trace me and I'd be, you know, in trouble. Um, don't contact the Interior Ministry. We're working on your visa law. Don't contact your consulate. Don't do this. Don't do that. Um, became extremely frightened. Perhaps his one mistake was leaving me with my phone, but he did um, drip feed me with data. But what he didn't actually realise, he made me on the minimum data plan, he didn't realise that it had unlimited social media. So wow. I could push push through the 500 megabytes for quite a while. Um, well, that's one thing I was really curious about was during this time where, you know, he's keep literally keeping you hostage and, and you're being, you know, assaulted, you know, by him regularly, was there any of your friends on social media who noticed anything out of the ordinary? Did anyone say, hey, Lara, you haven't been on social media much. How's it going over there? Are you okay? Well, they noticed that I wasn't. I was posting photos of cats and, like, posting photos indoors and not posting photos outside. They're like, there was one guy, my friend Phil, he said, why do you never really post photos of you outside or you rarely post photos of you outside? And I didn't respond to that. Um, mm. I mean, I still used social media. He didn't deprive me of social media. It was actually pretty much my only outlet of entertainment because um, – there was no really no entertainment in the house. Entertainment is a very basic thing. I watched The Devil Wears Prada like ten times um, because I kept asking him to render English movies to me, and um, that that became that was one of our ongoing struggles as well. It might sound like a very petty thing, but when you're a prisoner and you have absolutely no access to entertainment, mm. um, you kind of value even a slight bit of entertainment. Um, so yeah, some of them did notice that, like. Um, I wasn't really posting many outings. Um, and what about your sister? Oh, I told my sister and everything, um, and I told my friends. I mean, yeah, slowly. Initially, I might have been a bit cagey about it, but, like, I, I said, well, like, you, it's not incumbent on them to fix it. I, They were emotionally supportive, but none of them really knew how to contend with the situation. Um, and I, like, documented it in a group um, and in some conversations with them, and they may become uh, witnesses and um, to be able to corroborate what was going on. There were certain only certain few few very trusted friends that I actually revealed things to because I remember that I had created this image to the world of how happy I was, and it was mm. devastating to kind of confront the reality that the disparity between what I said my life was and the reality of my life was just so different. And there were maybe three or four people that I entrusted with mm. the reality of what was going on. And obviously, I didn't publicize it on Facebook. Um, and, and but I, I did. I did begin to start developing networks within Pakistan to get myself out of the situation. And that was a strategy I had to develop when my consulate and my government failed me. And so, just to sort of skip back a bit, the night that you actually, or the day, sorry, that you planned your escape, Sajad had actually made a comment to you that he was going to delete you. What? Correct. What did he mean by saying that? Well, I didn't like we just engaged in a bit of an argument. I didn't sit there long enough to find out what he meant by that macabre comment. Um, so he Bluetoothed his phone with mine. I'd actually been planning with Dr. Kessler Rafik for a number of weeks to have my escape. And the precedent that the Australian government has actually set for me, at least, is that 
um, when you're in danger in any country, you don't you are to rely on um, local strangers mm. um, for help. And just to just to make a note, Doctor Rafiq, he's um, he's actually the chief executive of um, a members only club for armed force officers. Was that yes. correct? And yeah, he is the, um, the the legal advisor to the ruling family of Dubai, and he owns multiple businesses in Dubai, mm. um, Pakistan, and London. And without him, I don't know if I would be alive mm. to this day. And yes, he owns um, what's called the Athos Complex or the Falcon uh, Complex in Goulburn. And um, we had been planning. He was, he was in Birmingham at the time, which is in um, the UK. And we'd been he was coming back on the thirtieth of August, and we'd been planning for an exit at that time, where he was going to because he knew my visa issues, and we were going to engage the head of army and head of police. Um, so you had been able. So you had been able to get in touch with some people through your own yes. sort of ingenuity. I began. Yes, I began to formulate. I would encrypt all my apps. I began to go on LinkedIn and find. I said, Sajad always told me I'm more powerful than you. I know more people than Lahore. You will never be more powerful than me. So my strategy became daily to become more powerful than him. I was like, I'm going to find out who the people are that are influential, the movers and shakers are that may be able to help me because my own government can't help me. Wow. I might not have mentioned that I tried a number of times to run away, but. What would, what would that have done? I'm like, I was, and he always caught up with me. What would that have done anyway? I was basically alone, and I couldn't couldn't leave this country because my visa was overstayed. You need an exit permit. I had no money on me. I was completely at the mercy of Pakistani authorities and people. It was totally a scary prospect. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the 26th of August, this threat was issued. I went into my room, double bolted my room because he had a key to the the lower lock. I double bolted it by pressing up the the upper lock as well. Wow. And I made the only decision that I felt that I could make. I reached out to Dr. Kessler Rafiq desperately, sent him crying voice messages, and um, he eventually got back to me. And I was advised to call 15. Um, I don't know whether it was before or after he got back onto me, but he got back onto me and reassured me it would be fine. And I called 15, which is the local police number, and I said, please help me. I feel in fear of my life. I was crying. I was in tears. And I did what I what I call embracing the uncertainty. At that point, the uncertainty of not knowing what was going to happen was a better fate than one more day mm. under the clutches of this terrifying individual that I had come to fear on a daily basis and who I despised with every fiber of my being. And tried desperately to placate at every juncture because of his temper, his violence, his anger, his abuse, his aggression. Um, and I was like, I walked into the uncertainty when I called 15. I was like, this is better. This is a better choice out of the terrible set of options in front of me. I choose this uncertainty. I WhatsApped the police, the factory police in Kent Lahore, my location. I waited for an hour. I was pacing in my room and they would intermittently call me. It was so hard for them because of all the winding streets in Pakistan and the traffic issues to find me. Um, and I waited. Sajad and his family were periodically trying to bang down the door and also periodically sending messages to try to placate me that there was just a try out in the front of my door and that I, I would be safe to come out. I, of course, did not believe this. Um, and basically I was quite shocked and overwhelmed when eventually a large police presence arrived. Many, many men with large guns. Um, I, I didn't do a head count, but I would say 30, 40. Wow. And Gosh, on top of everything else you were going through, did you feel 
any relief or did you feel even more terrified because there were like 30 people with guns there? I don't know what's going to happen here. Are they they going to harm me? Are they going to hurt me? Um, Which I think that they were very aware of. They would have been very aware of the fact that this white girl in a foreign country was scared. So they made efforts to assure me. They brought in a female neighbour who spoke English uh, because there were no female officers on at the time, even though I believe there are female Pakistani uh, police officers, but there were no females on at the time. And she sat by me and hugged me. And the police were like, don't worry, she's okay, she's looking after you. And um, they were actually quite great um, for the most part. And I just kept whispering into this woman's ear, you have to get me out of here. This family is cruel. I cannot stay another day. And the police asked me, do you feel safe in this house? I said, I'm not at liberty to answer that question in front of you, in front of them. And Mm -hmm. Sadaab was trying to manage everything, trying to make it out that I was just having a panic attack or whatever. And they gave me the choice of whether I wanted to come, come or go with them. And I said, take me with you. I want to come with you. I want to come with you. I want to leave with you tonight. Um, and Sajar had locked away most of my possessions. But at that point, my possessions were irrelevant to me. I was just like, Sorry, get me out of here. That's it. Just get me out of here. Gosh, I've, um, got, I've got pins and needles. Just... About, I wasn't even thinking about clothes for the next day. It, it just didn't even matter. So I was just like, just get me out of here, please. Um, and I went down to the police station. Um, the, the Khan family were on their bikes immediately. About five of them were, and I saw them at the back of the paddy, the police paddy wagon, and I was like, gosh, what are they going to do when we get to the station? They kept coming in trying to manage everything. The police had kept pushing them out. Um, the police were giving me food, um, trying to comfort me, and you know, I was asked whether I wanted to make a formal statement. I entered what's called a, a rapa or rapa or something like that. I can't say the Urdu word, which was a basic fair because I felt like without proper legal representation, it wasn't safe. And Bahar, the officer said, you know, like, like, because I started to say my whole story. And he said, hang on a second. I will have to, you're, you're making some quite grave allegations here. I will have to act on them if you continue. And I said, he said, let me guide you to making a basic fair or rupa. And you can then, when with proper legal guidance, make your decision what you want to do. And I said, okay. So he's really friendly in that regard. And he has confirmed on record that, that is the case. Because Sajarat is claiming that because I entered this basic uh, fur that there was nothing there. Um, the Kent police have come fully on board with my account of events of that night um, and have offered the full weight of their emotional uh, support. We now have a legal team and we're, we're going to be entering a comprehensive fur, which is a police statement um so that's been quite good the police the factory police have continuously affirmed support for me um which is a very positive thing a positive um thing for pakistan that's come from pakistan and we're quite grateful for that and we hope that it continues i just want to say i think you are incredibly brave i mean i cannot imagine being in that situation and and trying to navigate all of that on my own and um, being faced with that situation. So I, you know, I have chills listening to you talk about making that decision to to call, you know, local authorities and to go with them when you still didn't even know what the outcome was going to be, whether you would be jailed or fined or what would happen. Um, Well, on that occasion I was told, um, you know, just don't, don't show them your visa page. 
they were very, very cordial with me, very amicable with me. They didn't even do a major investigation. So I was very lucky that night to get away as mm. I did. And I was conveyed into the care of Dr. Kessa Rafik. I went to the AFOS club and stayed um, for about two weeks. Um, and AFOS was very comfortable. The staff came to be quite enamored with me. Um, I then moved and relocated um because, you know, you can't really stay at a members-only club, which is for the Pakistani yeah. military in ad infinitum. But I offer my extreme gratitude to Dr. Kessler Afik and his staff, who were completely um, amicable with me, and I'm still friends with mm. um, with all of them, and um, I give them for embracing me as they did as one of their own. Well, Dr. Afik was really, you know, a big part of saving your life, really. He was instrumental. Um, you know, him and Wilson Chowdhury together, I, I owe, like, my life to pretty much. Mm. There were many other people that lit the path. I call them my Pakistani angels, who are the little candles that lit my path to freedom. Um, and so, like, as a statement, because people often, you know, say, like, well, do you dislike Islam or do you, do you hate all Muslims? And I, I unequivocally say back, no, the Muslims saved me. As well as the Christian, uh, Pakistan Christian, British Pakistan Christian Association, but many Muslims saved mm. me. So absolutely not. I rebuke all um, of that commentary. That's false. That's nothing that I said. Um, and they said, "Do you hate all of Pakistan?" And I say, "No." I, but I, but I will criticize the elements of that society that allowed for my subjugation, mm. as I would with any society. And I think you know, you're completely. You know, I, th- I think it's beautiful that you've been able to. With all of the trauma that you went through, I think it's great that you've got that level of um, insight and and empathy um, for humanity that you haven't let that color your perception of of Muslim people or Pakistani people. Um, Not at all. And I, I think, live in service of Pakistani people. Mm. I'm running. I'm, I'm involved instrumentally um, in. The, the running of a charity. I, mean, I may only be a volunteer, but my service is quite mm. instrumental in making sure this organisation stays afloat and I am the key volunteer in Australia. And that's something I'd like to touch on just in a little bit. But yeah. Um, yeah. So so uh, how, how long was it before you sent a message requesting help to the Australian government? Uh, I mean, like, I can't remember the exact date when I initially made contact. Initially because I fear of God had been instilled with me by, by Sajjad that the consulate will come after me. Uh, I, firstly, I, like, and despite that, I called my number on private and called the Interior Ministry and tried, tried to find out what the visa process was. They were very rude to me. Um, and then I called my embassy and they weren't really trained in red flag situations. I said, am I safe to talk to you? Can I reveal my identity? Are you going to come after me? What, what's going to happen? Like, I was so scared because I was now an illegal alien in Pakistan. And they just treated me like a prank caller. So I, I made, I believe, a couple of initial calls to them. It was when, it was in August, so it had become so desperate that in August I initially, I called them and I told them everything. I said, this is who I am. You need to help me. This is what's happening. And I was so unequivocal. I, was, I just got to a point in total desperation. I was like, this is a situation. I had exhausted all other avenues. I called the Punjab Commission on the Service of Women. I called local charities. Nobody was answering my call for help. And in generic, in, in generic emails back to me, they basically ignored me. Uh, so that was late July, early August. And um, they said go to like, the local authorities, even though I had expressed my fears to them about that because of police corruption and the fact that my visa was so overst- overstayed. Mm. Well, I, I mean, been, like, that would have been more. terrifying. You're, you're an Australian woman in Pakistan. You're literally being held captive and you have overstayed your visa and now you're, you're faced with 
the only option really is to call local authorities and that could mean going to jail or, you know, like. and I imagine dealing with that level of trauma of being, you know, sexually assaulted and physically assaulted and then having, you know, a mental health condition on top of that would have just been extraordinary to try and deal with. And I've seen some of the documentation and some of those emails that you sent back and forwards and I think the one that really shocked me the most and and just made me really feel for you in that moment was when you got an email with just a generic link to go and check out Lifeline or Are You Okay Day. Like, but what would they have been able to do? I already did call Lifeline a million times, by the way. Then even a next their charter, their, their services charter, uh, to the first email or, or any links to lawyers, I had to chase them up on that. It was totally negligent. Um, and I don't know, I don't think I shared the WhatsApp conversations with you as well, but those are, those are shocking as well. And it was made obvious to me that it's beyond their jurisdiction. They they told me in calls that we respect the sovereignty of Pakistan. You're in Pakistan. We can't help you, basically. Um, they confirmed, and they confirmed in WhatsApp conversations and in telephone conversations multiple times that they don't offer legal, financial, or counselling help. So I began to wonder what what does the what does the Australian consulate do? Mm. It would have been very comforting to at least have them be there with me while I went to the police, knowing all my issues with my visa, or at least um, facilitating that to ensure that there was nothing bad that was going to happen to me. Well, it's incredibly terrifying to try and navigate that as as a foreign, you know, a foreign individual in a country like Pakistan and to try to organise to see lawyers and to see, you know... Without any finances either. Exactly. So you got to a point where, you know, Dr. Rafiq had taken you into his care. You um, you were safe for the meantime, but then you found out that basically because of your visa lapsing, you were going to be fined $400 and you also had to pay for a new flight to get home. And, of course, well, you had, I had – I was actually, I was actually um, told that I was at risk of going on the blacklist. So the blacklist is when you've overstayed so long that you actually become – pretty much a fugitive and are liable to be jailed. And I was told that my date of blacklisting was the 18th of September. I arrived at the Interior Ministry in Islamabad on the 17th of September. Oh, my gosh. I, I then um, – and by the way, I want to point out further failings of the Australian government. At this time, Amy kept – my sister, my twin sister Amy kept up an open channel of communication with Sajjah. I blocked him off everything. My sister kept up an open channel of communication with the intention of – just seeing what was going on in his crazy mind. He said that he was still tracking me. He said that he had investigators looking for me, and he told Amy, like, he was doing this to my welfare. He said that the people that I was with intended to human traffic me. He had used alleged evidence of that, which we've had translated, which has nothing to do with human trafficking and is just completely garbage, and it looks more to be my first information report. Um, we, and this is all in conversations. Um, he told Amy, please, he's... Um, let me know when Lara leaves AFOS. Um, and as soon as I left AFOS, he goes, I know she's left there. And I was letting the Australian consulate know this. And they, so he was still tracking you and still harassing you. Correct, correct. And I was frightened. There were many nights that I lost sleep because I believed. I was like, is he correct? Are the people that I'm with wanting to traffic me? He then alleged that the, that, that, that the second people that I was staying with were part of a prostitution racketeer. 
And Gosh, that would have been so terrifying. Original tactic, where like his, his scare attacks are becoming like less and less original by the day. I mean, he's just using everything in the book that he can. This is a totally deranged individual mm. to scare me um, into coming back to him, or yeah, like I think that was his intention. And the even the consulate have admitted that he made frightening calls to them, and they still did nothing. And I've written a very long email to my case officer. And we can locate no response where I have basically said I am terrified because he's telling me that I'm going to be human trafficked now. And there's no reply. I then got to Islamabad. I'm at risk of being jailed. And that was actually a threat that was issued by the Interior Ministry. I reach out with my friend Rafa. He's speaking to them in Urdu. I'm crying to them in English. And we say, can you please help us now? Can I take even safe harbour in the embassy? Can I meet with you? They said, we're too busy for you. No, you can't. Even when I was in Islamabad, they denied help to me. And so that's when the British Pakistani Christian Association really came on board and got behind me and helped me set up my GoFundMe, helped me to um, establish the finance. There, there were many donors, not just the British Pakistani Christian Association, to help get me out of Pakistan and to get me my flight home. They've helped me since. They've helped me with my legal representation. We've got re- um, so basically. We found me the lawyer, and we've now got legal representation. Yeah. Um, we're very happy with our lawyer, um, and they helped me with housing when I got home because there were instances where I was facing homelessness. They helped me with my mental health, um, and they helped me to bring to attention these issues. And we've got a number of initiatives that we've taken to, to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade (DFAT), um, which are British Pakistani, which are led initiatives led by me, but supported fully and. Uh, jointly created with the British Pakistani Christian Association, who I owe my life to, who I would not be standing here without them. Mm. Um, and I know that um, Wilson Chowdhury from um, British Pakistani Christian Association, he, like, I can I can see how deeply he cares about you because, you know, I've conversed with him over email and he always wants to make sure that the best is done by you and that anyone who's interviewing you has, you know, your best interests at heart and is going to help you actually raise more awareness of this and not just ask, you know, sensationalized questions to try to get um, a million views on an article or something like that. He's aware of how savage the media is mm. and having been a media figure himself for a number of years, um, his desire is to insulate me from that. That's why I always bring people through. Like I always say that he's an intermediary because he's a very safe person that I've come to trust um, and he knows the people that have the right interests at heart. That's why he's he knew that you had my interests at heart. And the British Pakistani Christian Association as a whole has my interests at heart. And I can veritably say without any doubt, unambulantly, that I would not be standing here without Wilson Chowdhury and the whole mm. British Pakistani Christian Association. I think it's so beautiful and I think he is just a an outstanding human being. And I think That's it's really – goes, he's outstanding. Oh, and I think it's really beautiful to hear stories like this as well because there's so much, so, so much negativity and so many awful things happening in our world. So it's just, it's wonderful when you hear of people who go out of their way to help another human the way that he has helped you. Um, and so, you know, once you touch back in Australia and, and you, you know, your flights were sorted and you came back, all in all, how many months had you been trapped in Pakistan? It's a good question. About 
um, six or seven months, maybe eight. Um, so from oh, wow. April to October. So that did my last thing about seven months, yeah. Like that must have been crazy to be away, you know, for six to eight months. It's such a huge, a huge chunk of time. And I could only imagine that for so many people who had been in a situation like yours, they would probably just, I don't know, maybe want to go inside and curl up in a ball and not really, not really want to see anyone or, or they'd probably just at the very most want to focus on their own healing. And what has really impressed me about you as a young woman is that not only have you been strong enough to basically fight for your survival and to fight to get out of that situation, but you are so outspoken now and so strong in in trying to change our laws and, and to stop anyone else from being basically left to fend for themselves the way that, that you were. And you've been very outspoken about the ways that the Australian government, you know, allegedly failed you. And and I want to say that when I say allegedly, it's not because I, I don't believe you. It's only because there are these discussions are, are still ongoing with the Australian consular. Um, but there was a document that you shared with me and and it showed, you know, the many types of assistance that's supposed to be provided by Australia to victims of sexual assault and crime and kidnapping and all of the things that you experienced. Um, and I saw the ways that, that you were failed. Um, and I think it's incredible that you are standing up and saying, not only should this not have happened to me, but I want to make sure it doesn't happen to anyone else. So I just want to firstly honour you for being such a courageous woman and, and using your experience to try to help so many other people. Um, but I would love to hear about some of the things that you are doing now, um, in collaboration with Wilson from um, BPCA, uh, one of those things is that you're working to um, working on um, something called Lara's Amendment and a safe and Safe Exits International. So I was hoping you could share with me more about those two things that you're currently working on. Yeah. Um, well, I just wanted to say to you, I, I didn't want my narrative to end with uh, it be a narrative of defeat. Uh, I came home and, you know, I have and I, I am experiencing still trauma, PTSD, all of those things. But for me, it's actually been quite a cathartic and healing process to actually turn, and it's such a cliche saying, but it pretty much summarizes turning lemons into lemonade is how I define it. Um, I really, really think that I now live in service of women and other people who do get left behind by their government. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the British Pakistani Christian Association and I, we, we printed out all the documents that influence consular policy and we looked at the gaps. We read them, like, through and through, from back to front. And there are three key documents, the state of play, consular strategy, and the service, the charter, services charter. And they're all influencing, um, you know, uh, consular strategy and diplomatic strategy and we noticed that there were a lot of gaps and so there's some things that DFAT can help us with um and we had and a, that's department of department of foreign affairs and, trade. Affairs and yeah. trade yep and they are the ones that influence um consular policy they are they deal with this it's within their purview and we met with a very high level um uh DFAT officials there was a panel of them and the head of consular policy and all of that. We won't name who they are for their own protection and welfare. 
and we were very buoyed by how open they were. They, they when, when submitted with the evidence and, and shown the evidence, they really couldn't refute the, their failings. And so they were quite humble. And it's very rare that you get invited to a second meeting. So we've actually been invited to have ongoing dialogue with them. So the parts of Lara's amendment that the DFAT can deal with are the things like um, amending consular policy to expressly deal with situations of grooming. There's no discussion of grooming. Um, human trafficking even, and really um, dealing with how you um, how you treat these kinds of crisis situations and training, mental health training, training and improved training and things like that. These are things that they can deal with. And also another thing that we're, we, we want to propose is, um, you know, there's victims of crime compensation for people that have suffered domestic crime, mm. but there's no scheme that's commensurate for international victims of crime. So I have no recourse. I can't um, go and get any kind of compensation. Um, and the initiative that you also referred to is Safe Exits International, which would be a 24-7 help centre for people that are in my kind of situation um, or similar. And obviously, each situation has its own challenges and nuances, and each narrative needs to be honoured for what it is and treated on its own merits, mm. um, which would really um, help people that are caught in dangerous situations to get their safe exit. And that's why we called it Safe Exit International, because it's a very unambiguous title. And when people like Rahaf, um, who escaped Saudi Arabia, this would have been the perfect kind of organisation that would have helped her to get her safe exit from Saudi Arabia. And for um, those listening who maybe aren't aware of that story, could you just very briefly share um, who Rahaf yes. is and what, what her situation was? So Rahaf uh, is a Saudi Arabian uh, woman and she escaped her, her clutches of her abusive family. She fled to Thailand and her passport was taken away from her. And just to abridge her story, um, she was the, the mistake they made. I don't consider it a mistake. I think it's great. Um, they left her with her phone. So she took to Twitter and in a flurry of successive um, frightening and um, powerful texts, poignant texts, she reached out to the international community and the international community responded, which shows you the power in the digital age of mm. social media to raise awareness and, you know, Thailand, as I said, and we've, we've got issues with the fact that our own DPCA um, refugees, many of them are stuck in Thailand detention centres for similar reasons. Um, Thailand is not a signatory of the Refugee Convention, so there was some issues there with uh, around legally um, what to do, and then there was a risk that she was going to be sent back to her family. And um, I believe the UNHCR and Canada intervened rather quickly and expediently, thankfully, for Rahaf, but there are many others that have gotten left mm -hmm. behind um, for her to go to Canada. And she's now a Canadian. Um, and So, some, so very, something very like... Yeah, and so something like Safe, you know, Safe Exits International, having something like that for you or, or for Rahaf would have meant that there was a dedicated line that was manned 24-7 where you knew that there was someone you could talk to and, and that person would have been obviously well-trained in how to, how to give support to someone that's going through um, various different crimes, including, you know, perhaps sexual violence or sexual assault. Um, you know, being held against your will. And I can only imagine, you know, 
how isolated you must have felt when you were over there, not having anyone that you could just reliably have a conversation with. Um, and I'm correct. I, even my own embassy, and and it's it's frequent that um, you know that people do feel alone in these situations, and you don't know where to turn to. So if we could act as an intermediary, um, and also have. So that's why we need funding because we'd like to have the financial capacity to. Unfortunately, you need money in these situations mm. to give to these victims who need, who will need help to to get their safe exit. Um, it would be very, it would be fantastic to represent the voiceless and there's a precedent for domestic crime because there's an organization called vocal who will you will liaise with the police if you're dissatisfied with them but there's no international um equivalent that i could find at least at um you know that's well known um to deal with these situations um to intervene with dealing with um, un bodies like the unhcr and dealing with um consular staff and being empowered to kind of deal with all these relevant agencies, which might be quite confusing for mm. somebody. But if we, if that agency was empowered to basically work on behalf of these victims, but also giving firstly travel advice before they leave to countries, giving in-situ help mm. and post-situ help, this could be quite a comprehensive service. It would, I would give my... Um, lend my expertise and skills as a lawyer and someone who's had that experience um, and the British Pakistani Christian Association would be behind it and mm. perhaps other partners in future. And that's one thing, what you were saying just then as well about being able to u- utilise your skills as a lawyer. I was I was just thinking to myself as you were saying that, you know, it's it's awful that you had to experience any of these things and you know, I wish that you never had, but I always try to, you know, encourage other people or even myself to try and look at what we can do with our pain and with our trauma in order to make it something, you know, empowering and to help other people. And I think you are in such a unique position now with your legal expertise to be able to go forward and make sure that hopefully this either doesn't happen to other people or that if they are in a situation like this, that they can actually get comprehensive support and not be left to to fend for themselves. And for that, you know, I think that must be at least a, a silver lining or, or some sort of reassurance. I was going to use that word. I'm in search of silver linings here. Um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I don't think that realistically and pragmatically I'm going to be the last person or that Rahaf's going to be the last person in this situation. So it's desperately needed that we have this kind mm. of a service. We live in the real world. Um, violence isn't going to just stop. I mean, like, we've, we've, we live in a world with terrible things happening. Just think about And I want to extend my condolences and sympathies to the victims of the New Zealand attacks on Friday. These things are happening in our world, and I live in the real world. So I hope that listeners will also live in the real world and realize that, yeah, this, these situations will arise again, and hopefully at that point, We'll have something, we'll have a response, a better mm. response. The Australian government will exactly. have a better response. Other governments will have a better response. There'll be grooming laws in place. The consular strategy and the consular pro- protocols will be strengthened and we'll have Safe Exits International up and running to be able to redress the situation as it's happening and not to kind of look back and go, what could we have done? What oh, exactly. At the time? So in my situation, it's a what could we have done better? But I want to be. I want to be that answer. I want to answer that call 
the next time that someone mm. cries out for help. There's two things that I, I just sort of came to mind then and before we finish up our call, there's um yeah, yeah there's a couple of things I'd love to just quickly touch on with you. Yeah. One of them is is what you were saying about un- unfortunately, you know, it's unlikely that this sort of situation is never going to happen to anyone else. And we very briefly touched on this earlier in the conversation. You've had a lot of people um, who, and, and even I think Dr. Rafiq sort of mentioned this as well, uh, saying, you know, well, what was she thinking traveling to a country like this to meet up with someone she'd never met before? What would you like to say to perhaps a, a young woman who might find herself in a situation like you where she's met someone from overseas, that person wants her to come over and visit, and they've never met before? Looking back at the, the red flags that sort of came up that maybe you didn't notice in the past, is there anything, any advice that you would give to a young woman in that situation in terms of, of how to navigate a situation like that? Even if it's like, would you say maybe they should ask the guy to come over and visit them first in Australia? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question that you've asked. I I would say, especially in the age of the internet, we have a lot of people that are being catfished. We have a lot of people that are not even just catfish, but developing internet romances. It's not uncommon, and so it is bound to happen again. Um, Would I I would suggest um, a better plan. Um, I, I mean, I can't say don't ever go overseas and meet the love of your life because that's people are doing it all the time that's just not going to happen and it's mm. not a pragmatic solution um internet the age we, we live in the internet age we live in the in age of internet dating we have a proliferation of internet dating websites um i can't offer a solution that doesn't match with reality uh, people are meeting people online it's about safe internet behavior and at this point i would say um Definitely have a better strategy and a better plan for if things go wrong. Because I didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I thought I might. I thought I did. But I would have, in hindsight, invited Sajad to meet me on home soil rather than go meet him or go with somebody else. Mm-hmm. Going alone is pretty dangerous, risky strategy if you've never met face to face. Certainly, don't stay with them in their house. Um, I would get accommodation that's separate, um, which they may, which they shouldn't be aware of. Um, and have a, a, an exit strategy if things go sour. Always think of, okay, what will be the worst-case scenario if this person isn't who they profess to be? Because, unfortunately, behind a screen, we can all present a veneer of someone that we're not, and it's when you're confronted with someone's reality that, you know, you go, okay, wow, I've been hoodwinked, and it's happening all the time. I guess we... I would I would say never until you're really really sure someone never really agreed to stay in their house. Yeah, and look, all of these things. It's really easy to look back with hindsight and look at the things you should have changed or could have done differently. But I am just so thankful that you had the wits about you and the ingenuity to to find a way out and to to get someone to help you. Um, and I think it's incredible that you are using your experience and your voice um, to be. Yeah, to to be a voice for people who maybe have been through the same thing but don't have that strength yet to speak out. Well, it's actually joint, as I said, it's a very joint work with, with my organisation, the British Pakistani Christian Association. I, I always say that I'm nothing without them and that's truly what I believe. Mm. I completely humble myself to them. I am just, I am so thankful for them. I am, um, our team is amazing and I am fortunate to be part of 
what I think is, and I may be biased for the world's best charity, in my opinion, but I am biased. Everything that I do is because of them and through them. So, um, well, quite I have I have to agree with you from, you know, the very limited sort of um, communication I've had, but what I've seen from, you know, Wilson himself and um, BPCA, they seem like an absolutely wonderful organisation. So. Amazing. On that, Nothing short of amazing. <laughs> and on that note, I think that's a really yeah. great place to um yeah. to wrap up our conversation. And so, one Thank final you. question, just quickly: yes. if people would like to support the work of yourself and BPCA, how can they find out more about you guys and support your work? We have the British Pakistani Christian Association blog, and we have um, a. Trust.org, um, you should say, fundraising platform um, link for Safe Exits International, which I can send you. And if you yeah, heard, great. Um, there's the Lara's Amendments petition that they can sign as well, which I think you already have a link mm-hmm. to. And that's um, on Facebook so as well, even, isn't it? There's a there's yes, a page, Lara's Amendments. Lara's Amendments, Lara Hall BPCA. Mm-hmm. So these are the these are some meaningful ways because the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade is actually listening to that petition and that's what really um, stirred them to action and catalyzed and was catalyzed into action was the impetus for the meeting that we had. Um, so the, all these things are precipitating great change and you can be part of the right side of history. Um, and don't think that just because you have one voice that you can't be a difference because when we raise our voice in concert, we become a chorus against the evils in this world. So never exactly. think that you are too small because you're not. And I would I appreciate every single voice. Um, I think it was the, the 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 person who started the body shop, Anita. Her name was. She said, "If you think that you're too small to create change, you've never been in a room with a mosquito." Yeah. <laughs> I will have to wrap up our chat. So thank you so much for making the time to chat today. Thanks to everyone that's listened. Bless you and have a lovely Sunday. Well, there you have it, guys. That was my chat with Australian lawyer and representative for British Pakistani Christian Association, Lara Hall. I hope you really enjoyed my chat with Lara and that you found her story to be as inspiring as I do. As I mentioned in the show, if you'd like to show your support to Lara and BPCA, please jump into the show notes section and go to the links that I've put in there to her petition and other work that she's doing presently. As always, if you enjoyed this chat, please feel free to jump on the Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day Facebook page where you can join us for more inspiring content. And if you haven't yet picked up a copy of my book, Reasons to Live, you can also grab that via my website, jazzrawlinson.com. And of course, I always love hearing from you guys about you know topic ideas or if there's someone inspiring that you think I should be chatting to, then please let me know. Just jump on my Facebook page, Reasons to Live One More Day Every Day or hit me up with a message and let me know who you think I should talk to next. Stay safe, guys. Be kind to yourselves and talk soon.